0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark 14. Today we are beginning the process of following Jesus as he endures what amounts to a six stage trial process. As Jesus is arrested and led away from the Garden of Gethsemane. It's barely midnight, barely after midnight. The rest of the night and into the early daylight hours of Friday morning, the trial process proceeds. The first three trials are religious in which Jesus appears before the Jewish leaders. First, there is a short preliminary appearance before Annas, the high priest Caiaphas' father-in-law. And that's only recorded in John 18, verses 12 through 14. Then the second and most significant trial is before Caiaphas, Then third, Jesus appears before the entire Sanhedrin at daybreak for a very short, formal hearing. During the second religious trial before Caiaphas, we see Peter's denial of Christ. The last three trials are civil in nature. Jesus appears before the Roman authorities, Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate again. So how are we going to approach all this? The plan is to cover it in three Sundays. Today, we will concentrate on the first two religious trials so that next Sunday we can focus on the account of Peter's denial. And then we'll get to the three religious, the third religious, trial, the formal hearing, and the three civil trials before Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again. Once again, I'm looking to Dawson McAllister's A Walk With Christ to the Cross and James Montgomery Boyce's commentary to help keep us focused on these very important proceedings and to keep us from getting confused. The question is, was the most law-abiding person in history condemned to die on a cross? The first religious trial before Annas is a preliminary hearing to see if there are any grounds for bringing a formal charge. If you want to turn with me to John 18... I'll be reading verses 12 through 14 and then verses 19 through 24 to give us this context. We read there, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him I have spoken openly to the world, I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So the question first is, who is, who was Annas? He's someone obviously very important, so we need to hear some brief historical background information So we can sort out who was who as we go through this. Even though Israel was ruled by the Romans, they did give a certain amount of freedom to the religious leaders of Israel to run the country. The leading religious leader and political leader was the high priest. Normally, the high priest would rule for life. But the Romans did change that up. They changed it to being able to rule for only a few years. Annas had been the high priest for 16 years before he had been removed from office. But he continued to work so closely with the Romans that they chose five of his sons at different times to serve as high priest. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law, and he was the high priest at the time of Christ's arrest. But the real power of the Jewish leadership came from, guess who? Annas. In fact, Annas was still referred to as high priest. It's a little confusing, but that title stayed attached to him. He came from a very rich family, and get this, that operated a business in a booth, guess where, within the temple. We know that the Jewish religious leaders had been trying to find a way to put Jesus to death for a very long time. But the Romans did not allow the Jews to practice capital punishment without their approval. And putting Jesus to death without a valid cause could very easily cause the people to riot. Now think about it, because this is very, very important. This would then cause the Romans to clamp down very hard, which the Jewish leaders were trying to avoid at all costs most of the Jewish leadership actually was faring very well under Roman rule. So the active Jewish revolutionary groups, of which there were several, were actually a significant threat to the leadership's own peace and prosperity. So the Jewish leaders would have to assemble some kind of very fast trial with phony charges. Phony charges against Jesus so that they could quickly get a guilty verdict against him. That's their strategy. In other words, in this preliminary hearing, Annas was hoping to get Jesus to incriminate himself. But... As we see, he got nowhere with Jesus. And it's important to note that the Jewish leaders broke many of their own laws when they tried Jesus. One being that it was illegal to hold a trial at night. They were so desperate to have Christ condemned and crucified that they willfully ignored their own law. And notice how Annas tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He wanted to know, first, if Jesus' disciples were revolutionaries, and second, if Jesus' teaching was full of lies and so had blasphemed against God by claiming to be equal with God. So that's what he's after. First, he's hoping that Jesus would incriminate himself by saying something that would reveal his disciples were revolutionaries, and second, that his teaching was blasphemy. Now, Jesus' response, as always, really the underlying thread through this whole section, all the way through the crucifixion, is the incredibly powerful and majestic nature of Christ as he faced all this, all of which was not true of him. He completely ignores the first question about his disciples being revolutionaries. Why? Simply because it was common knowledge that they weren't so he didn't even speak to it. Jesus answered the second question, but he did it in a very interesting way. He essentially called Annas to legal order. In other words, the Jewish law said that the accused can't be asked questions which would bring self-incriminating answers. And a prosecutor could not summon his witnesses until the accused witnesses, the witnesses testifying on behalf of the accused, had spoken. Do we see any witnesses for Christ? Not one. They were never called, never sought completely ignored the law here. And if Annas had really wanted to know what Jesus taught, he could have easily summoned witnesses that heard him teach. Easily. You notice that's what Jesus said. I spoke to you often. Everyone heard me. I was not doing this in secret. And he goes on and on. So Jesus's display of calm authority and directness just really ticked off this temple guard. This was the first time that Jesus was ever really physically attacked. The guard acted illegally. The accused could not be physically punished before he had been proven guilty. So Jesus' response pointed out the legal right He had to answer the way he did. And that's important to know. It proved that Jesus had the legal right. He had to answer and call them to order. There was no cause to be slapped. Annas realized then very quickly that he was not going to get any self-incriminating information from Jesus. So what does he do? He decides to send Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and the Sanhedrin court. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. In Mark's account, we see the details here. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus "...to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands." Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming down with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him. As deserving death, and some began to spit on him, and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, "Prophesy!" And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's look at this second religious trial before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin court. One of the strategies that was employed here was that Annas had stalled long enough for a quorum of the 75-man court to assemble. Remember what time this was, the first one? It was probably about 3 o'clock in the morning. A quorum, they had to have at least 25 out of the 75. And it was the middle of the night, again, around 3 a.m. So where and how are they going to find credible witnesses? The only kind of testimony, Jewish law, this is according to the Mishnah, the oral tradition of Jewish law, that could bring conviction, the only kind of testimony that could bring conviction had to be relevant testimony on which two or more witnesses agreed. And we see that here in verses 55 and 56. Notice that our text says something very interesting. It says, even though many bore false witness, their testimony did not agree. You can picture that, can you not? The middle of the night, desperate, evil men. Determined to say anything that they could to bring Jesus to death. Chaos. Finally, though, a charge was brought that was false. And those that brought it, we read, did not completely agree. But it resembled what Jesus had said about his body. In John two nineteen, the first time he cleansed the temple and his prediction of the temple being destroyed in Mark 13, verse 2. Here in verses 57 through 59, and some stood up and bore false witness against him. See, this, this sounds strange, does it not? They bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days... I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they didn't agree. But each time, the unique phrase that we hear is what? In three days. Was used. Jesus said this several times in several different ways, but he's saying in three days, which was his main emphasis there. And Jesus used this phrase on other occasions in which it was evident that he was prophesying his resurrection, an event that would vindicate him, his claim to be the Son of God. Now, Caiaphas was many things, but he was a shrewd leader, and he had to be aware of what Jesus meant by this saying in three days. He knew he was prophesying his own resurrection. And that had to be a claim to Jesus being what? Divine. It was a claim Jesus making to his own divinity. Even though it wasn't in a form. Maybe you could get Art to explain this sometime that was clear enough to warrant a formal condemnation. We know that Caiaphas understood this because after the crucifixion, something interesting happened. The Jewish leaders went to Pilate to ask that the tomb be secured. Why? Because they understood this saying of Jesus to refer to his predicted resurrection. These guys knew that. So Caiaphas had to be so frustrated at this point. He had taken a chance in arresting Jesus at such a late hour during Passover of all times which was completely the opposite of their plan. They wanted to arrest Jesus sometime in secret so that there wouldn't be all the people coming together and cause a riot. But God had other plans. It happened when more Jews were in Jerusalem than any other time of the year. You couldn't turn around with bumping into somebody else. Passover. But Caiaphas did understand what Jesus had been claiming. And he did, on that score, have a good case. But he could not secure a legal verdict. He was close, but the whole situation seemed to be slipping out of his grasp. Then even though he as a high priest was forbidden to intervene in a capital trial, another part of the legal priorities that they disobeyed, broke, he could cast his vote only after the other court members had cast their own. But what did he do? What did we just read? He suddenly stood up In the middle of all these guys, and asked Jesus the question Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent and did not answer. Now, in Matthew's account, in chapter 26, verse 63, Matthew 26, 63, he gives us the detail that makes what Caiaphas does next so vitally important. This is what he records Caiaphas then said. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And we just read that and go, well, yeah. But this is the most solemn oath in Israel called the oath of testimony. I urge you by the living God. I adjure you by the living God. I call you by the living God. And Caiaphas, using very, very precise language, demands for Jesus to tell them whether he is the Messiah who is God. It was not a capital crime to claim to be the Messiah because time would prove it one way or the other. Somebody claims to be the Messiah, you just wait around, you see. But about the Son of God question, what about that one? Well, Jesus had diffused a similar accusation before in chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. But by combining these two parts, as he did, Caiaphas was not merely asking if Jesus was the Messiah or a son of God in some general sense, which is how he'd answered that before, calling attention to the fact they didn't really understand that part of the text. But by combining it, he was saying whether he, he was asking Jesus whether he was the Messiah who was God. And if Jesus said yes to that, he could be convicted of the capital crime of blasphemy. What are you thinking? But he was God. Well, that's the point. But they would not hear it. So it wasn't blasphemy if he was God, but it's blasphemy if you don't believe he was. So Jesus answered him with a firm what? I am That's a yes with an exclamation point. And yes, it is the same I am as we see elsewhere. It is as you say. Can it be any clearer than that? Again, this is another place where you need to call out anyone who says that Jesus never anywhere in the New Testament claimed to be God. You can't get much clearer than this. But he also added some very enlightening details about the kind of Messiah and Son of God he was. In verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now folks, this is one of those times when we cannot give the excuse that we don't understand the Old Testament. As a Christian, we should be growing more and more and more so that we have that foundation. Because every Jew knows exactly what this is saying we have no excuse if we lessen the import of this prophecy. Jesus refers here to that magnificent passage in Daniel in which the prophet describes a divine figure approaching the ancient of days, God Almighty, to join in God's judgment. And Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And here's that text. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Clear enough? The assembled court did not misunderstand Jesus' reference to Daniel 7. The temple guard's And the soldiers now felt at liberty to abuse Jesus. Can you see the reaction? They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. And their response? And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? Well, there hadn't been any that were making true statements. You have heard his blasphemy. What is he saying there? You have heard his blasphemy. He's saying, Every one of you heard him claim to be whom? God. That's what blasphemy is. What is your decision? And they all condemned him. They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now, there is a whole lot for us to learn from these first two stages of Christ's trial. As Christ stands firm with calmness and majesty, Everyone else, everyone else seems to be fleeing in fear. Who would that be? His disciples? Or fueling their desire to hold on to their power and position by doing what? Ignoring anything and everything that would bring peace and joy to their soul. And there's no middle ground here. It's one or the other that's going on. The disciples have fled into the night in panic. And Peter is about to deny the very one he swore he would die for just a couple of hours before this. Judas has done the unimaginable in betraying the one who included him and ministered to him and showed him the true meaning of his existence and gave him opportunities to make a difference in the lives of fellow Israelites and truly cared for him and loved him as no other ever would or could. And the Jewish leaders, get this, had the very one, And only Messiah standing right in front of them. Whom they as a people had been crying out for and waiting for for hundreds of years. And they valued their positions of power and influence over others above and more than knowing the God who created them and gave them life. They ignored Micah 5.2, which told them where the Messiah would be born. Isaiah 7.14, which said the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. They ignored multiple Old Testament passages that let them know the Messiah was to be of David's line. They ignored the fact that the Messiah was to be preceded by an Elijah-type figure, John the Baptist. They ignored the fact that the Messiah was to do many great works, which they knew about. The fact that the Messiah was to make a public entry into Jerusalem riding a donkey... They ignored the fact that Psalm 41, nine prophesied the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. They ignored the fact that the Messiah was to be despised and rejected by his people and would be very familiar with suffering, as Isaiah 53 says. Jesus' majesty... And patience in submitting to this part of his father's redemptive plan demonstrates his powerfully deep and abiding love for his father and his father's will and his love for those he came to save. Look around. Those are you and me. Jesus will stay the course to pay the ultimate price to purchase you and me with his own blood. In the face of all these trumped up charges and and then proclaiming who he really was, truly was, Jesus Christ is proving that he is the only one we can put our hope in. He is worthy to be worshipped and adored and praised and loved and served. Praise God. I think we just sang that several different times in every song that we sung this morning. These passages and many more contain references to the appearance of God on earth in human form and suggest that Jesus was the one. The Sanhedrin might not have been convinced, but this would have been a reasonable defense and it's absence, complete absence from Jesus' trial. Not even considered his claim. Nobody raised their hand and said, but what about Micah? What about the, the triumphal entry we saw him make where, where people were shouting out the words that were prophesied in the Old Testament? And he was on a donkey. And he did heal thousands of people and feed thousands of people out of nothing. Why? There was no word, not one word like that in any of this. So it's absence from Jesus' trial. What's the main point? What does it expose? It exposes the closed minds and the jealous hearts of those who are Christ's judges. The sad truth really is that these judges are not substantially different from millions of careless people in our day who just will not hear it. And I hope you realize that that means you and me too. God opened your eyes, my eyes, to see it. So much like Caiaphas. So the question is: Have you really considered Christ's claims? In in the last analysis, it's not Jesus who is on trial. That's history. It's over. You are the one who is on trial. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus? No excuses. Let's pray. Father, as we begin another year, it seems they're going so fast. Help us recognize how brief our time really is here on this earth. Help us see and understand and feel the need that each of us has to know you, to love you, to bear our souls to you. Lord, thank you that our only hope is Christ. Thank you that he demonstrated his majesty, his self-control. That the God that Ken explained in Sunday school today is Lord Jesus confined himself to a human body to be able to live the life demanded of us and to be an acceptable sacrifice to bring us to you to pay the price for our sin himself. And oh God, we confess, we take that for granted so often. Even as we call out your name, even as we say we belong to you. And you are so gracious and patient with us. Lord, you're Showing us here at the beginning of 2019 again, and, but in so many different ways, that you are committed to complete what you have promised to do in us. To make us more like your son, to bring us to a point of growing in our faith and love for you because we finally start realizing more and more and more and more as we go through your scriptures. Who you are, and how great our need truly is, and what you did for us in Christ to bring us to yourself. And we still, we still step back from enjoying knowing our God and falling before you on our faces, in joyful service. How could there be anything greater in our lives than knowing the one who created us and being made a part of his family, your family, as adopted sons and daughters, and knowing that we have a secure and certain hope of being with you forever and ever. And as we continue to go through these trials and next week Peter's denial and then the final condemnation and execution, we pray that the gravity and the weight of all this would touch the deepest parts of our souls that needs to be touched. And that we would come to know an affection and a love for you that grows and that is so much greater than any affection or desire we have for anything in this world. Only you could have such a great purpose for us here to prepare us for eternity with you. And we pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to understand that. We thank you for being able to worship you together with one another. Whereas in other parts of the world on this day, as every worship day, there's people being forced to hide, they're suffering, they're arrested, some even killed for your name. Are they crying out, it's not worth it? No, they're the ones who really know that you are worth anything that you call us to go through. And we enjoy the fellowship and the freedom, and we pray that you'd show us how to make the best use of that this year for your glory and your sake. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you're doing in us and amongst us. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could you please stand for our benediction? Two passages. First from Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then in the end of Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. haven't seen you in a few days. Happy New Year. You're dismissed.